Alright, hello everybody. Today is Monday, another Zodiac Monday. Welcome to the show. Just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first is that this show has three main episodes that come out on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And Friday isn't anything goes for any subject is fair game, mostly talking about true crime, serial killers, and the Zodiac Killer. And it's going to be just that this week, a Zodiac Anything Goes Friday, where I will be discussing the book The Hunt for Zodiac by Mike Rodelli. And last week on the Zodiac Killer News Report, a lot of you guys were leaving some excellent questions and comments about Mike Rodelli's research and his suspect, Shel Cavale, and the uh, process that he went through to obtain all the information. And that stuff will be available this Friday on the Anything Goes segment. Recently, I had been doing a series of videos on Stephen Avery, who was the subject of the Netflix docuseries Making a Murderer, which explores what happened to Teresa Holbach. She is the victim in the murder story that has been associated with that Netflix series. And it's presented in somewhat of an engaging way, just trying to figure out who actually committed the murder of Teresa Holbach. And there is a playlist that has been assembled for the episodes that I've done about the case of Stephen Avery. But this week on the channel, there will be the Zodiac episode on The Hunt for Zodiac by Mike Rodelli. And also, I would like to give a shout-out to Andrew Gray, who sent this in to the email address. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at aol.com. And he said, hey there, I'm doing tech stuff for a true crime podcast called Citizen Detective which is hosted by Mike Morford, Nama Cates, and Lee Meller. Mike Morford, of course, of ZodiacKillerSite.com and ZodiacKiller.net, as well as behind the podcast Zodiac Speaking. We are streaming this show live every Tuesday, starting on the 14th, and we will also cut each episode into an audio podcast. The cool thing is you can record voice messages for us that we can play on the show and discuss. Thanks. And this is, once again, from Citizen Detective. So please look out for that one in the future on uh, various uh, places to get your podcasts. And speaking of that, there is also a show called Serial Killer Z to A, which has dedicated its first season to the Zodiac Killer. It is indeed a Zodiac Killer Channel original production, and you can get that as well anywhere you get your podcasts, including iHeartRadio. And as for this show, Black Box Online Radio, it is available for free downloads at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. You can download the audio version of the program, take it on the go anywhere and anyhow. If you would like to download the video version, you can use YouTube Premium, but that one you have to pay for. Launchpad 1 is free. And there is always the buymeacoffee.com page. There's a link to that in the description box as well. If you'd ever like to make a contribution to help support the channel, anything is welcome, and you will get a shout-out on Zodiac Mondays. So to begin with today's topic, I would like to give one more shout-out to Sepper Karimi, who sent this in to the email address, and Sepper and I have been discussing this for a while, but it's related to the 1966 murder of Sherry Jo Bates. Some people believe that the Zodiac Killer committed his first murders in December of 1968 at Lake Harmon Road with the murders of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen but some people believe that that is not the case. And there's actually pre-Zodiac activity, which occurred in 1966. On October 30th of that year, Sherry Jo Bates was murdered outside of the RCC library. That's the Riverside City College. What happened to her is still a mystery to this day. 
But what's interesting about the Bates murder is that after the crime took place, somebody sent in various pieces of writing. There were at least three sets of writing that were discovered after Sherry Joe's murder. The first is the Riverside Confession, which was mailed in November of 1966. As I said, Sherry Joe was murdered at the end of October. And the Riverside Confession said, She was young and beautiful, but now she is battered and dead. Miss Bates was stupid. She went to the slaughter like a lamb. I am stalking your girls now. And then, in December of 1966, there was the discovery of the desktop poem that says, Sick of living, unwilling to die. That was actually discovered by a custodian, and if I recall correctly, the desk was actually found in storage, as opposed to being out in the open, and the custodian saw the morbid text, and he was very much bothered by it. And, I mean, he did the right thing in all seriousness, because it could have been evidenced in an ongoing murder case, and it's really good that he came forward with that. Then, in the spring of 1967, somebody mailed three letters that said Bates had to die, there will be more. In fact, that's what's on two of them. The third letter was mailed to Sherry Joe's father, and it said she had to die, there will be more. His last name was also Bates, so that's why there was an alteration on that particular letter. But what um, Sepper and I have been discussing is the final two letters of the desktop poem that say R-H. What does that mean? Well, let's read the whole text. The full text of the desktop poem is Sick of living, unwilling to die, cut, clean, if read, clean, blood spurting, dripping, spilling, all over her new dress. Oh well, it was red anyway, life draining into an uncertain death. She won't die, this time. Someone will find her. Just wait till next time. R.H. What do those letters mean, R.H.? There are some theories out there that, number one, this could be the killer's real initials, because by not signing their name, they thought it would never possibly be traced back to them, and that if they're not going to get caught, they might as well use their real initials. Or some people think that it was a pen name, like, say, for example, lots of writers and poets use a name that isn't their legal name, or the government name, as some people now like to say. But then, some people think that it could be a tribute to a particular place, or maybe it's just highlighting a particular place like Ramona High, which was a high school that was nearby. But what Sepper did was he began to think that it could possibly be paying tribute to not a place, but perhaps a famous poet. And he has identified R.H. Barlow, that somebody could have been not only inspired by the poetry, but even wanted to kind of pretend that they were R.H. Barlow. Like, say, for example, if somebody saw something about fantasy and wizards and elves and it was signed J.R.R., well, maybe then they're paying homage to J.R.R. Tolkien, something down that avenue. And Sepper shared one particular poem with me called Date Uncertain. This is by R.H. Barlow that says, the angular green of a mask used in Benin, while black warriors banished from the compound, edge along the night wall, and comets eat the sky. The black-breasted women heard about him. He gestures. They are trees. He postures. They are reeds. Spearing the day of the river. They are violent flowers. On it or teeth under the water. 
The soft spider of his brain weaves rapid angles. They are flies. They are the elephant tusk grove, the elephant trunked vine. And he says years, and Johannesburg is cracked. And he says old stones sacred in the valley by the boys, but Christ whipped away like a melon thief or a wife thief, with his blood drooled on the ground. And he says, oh, their silly hats, glass, they're women that have never, and there's a dash mark, the herd shrieks, and a laugh, and a tiger in a grove hesitates, losing a step in his intricate tread. And, you know, that's, um, there could be a lot of ways we could interpret that particular poem, and other than the part there about blood and um, women, I didn't think that it was immediately reminiscent of the desktop poem that was written, Sick of Living, Unwilling to Die, Blood, Spurting, Spilling. Um, there is a little bit of a connection there in terms of blood, but I wasn't going to dismiss the idea that easily, and I wanted to try and see if there were more poems written by R.H. Barlow that were online. And one of the more famous ones that comes to the top of the search results anyway was called R.E.H. Yes, it's written by R.H. Barlow, but it's just written out R.E.H. And it's actually about Conan the Warrior King. Conan the Warrior King lies stricken dead beneath a sky of cryptic stars. The lute, thar was his laughter stilled and sadly mute. Upon the chilling earth his youthful head, there sounds for him no more clamorous fray, but dirges now, where once the trumpet loud, about him press old memories for shroud, and ended is the conflict of the day. Death spilled the blood of him who loved the fight, as men loved mistresses and fought it well. His fair young flesh is marble where he fell, with broken sword that vanquished all but night, and as of mythic kings, our words must speak of Conan now, who rose where dreamers seek. So as you see, though, there's definitely not only some type of connection there to blood, but also to stabbing, and Cherry Joe Bates was indeed stabbed to death. But I would also um, want to share a particular piece of the message that Sepper has written out. Once again, he sent this into the email address, and it says, I always believe that the desktop poem doesn't have anything to do with the Sherry Joe Bates murder. So I started searching for a while, and I found something interesting. I'm not 100%, but there's a good chance that I might have found the source of the desktop poem. It is from a book called Poems of Compositions, and check out the name of the poet, R.H. Barlow. The digital version doesn't exist, but would you mind saying something on your show? Sorry for my grammar. English isn't my first language. Hey, no, you're doing just fine, Sepper, and I really do appreciate you sharing this with me, because much as the custodian who found the desk would think, it's important to explore almost all possible venues and almost all possible pathways in an unsolved case, because there could be something there. And the interesting thing about the poet R.H. Barlow is I learned that he was a close friend of someone who was a more famous writer. I mean, no offense to R.H., but um, H.P. Lovecraft. And I really haven't read too much from H.P. Lovecraft. I read The Temple and Again, both these guys just seem like they're very much caught up with morbidity, and I don't think that it's the most outrageous um, idea in the world that R.H. could be paying homage to a fa 
Miss Ryder, what do you think about that? And please feel free to weigh in on some of the other questions. Do you believe the desktop poem was written by the murderer of Sherry Jo Bates? And there's, there are a lot of competing theories about this, because one person who disagrees is Soren Korsgaard, who is the author of America's Jack the Ripper, the definitive account of the Zodiac Killer. And Soren's analysis of this is mostly related to linguistics. Talking about, in the desktop poem, he says that, it says, she won't die this time, just wait till next time. But Sherry Jo Bates was indeed murdered, and she had already been murdered by the time the desktop poem was discovered. It also talks about blood spilling all over her red dress, and Sherry Jo Bates was not murdered in a red dress. And then there's, well, it's also important to remember that Soren does believe the Zodiac wrote the Riverside Confession. The nutshell version of his theory is that the Zodiac did not murder Sherry Jo Bates, but he wrote the Riverside Confession and then did not write the other two pieces of, of text, the um, desktop poem and the Bates Had to Die letters. And the reason um, is, as I said, because of the language that is used. In the Riverside Confession, there are particular words that are misspelled twitch and squirm, which are then later on used by the Zodiac. So could this possibly be an example of pre-Zodiac activity? One person who is in a completely different theory is Richard Grinnell of ZodiacCiphers.com. And Richard's um, take on the subject is that those three pieces of writing were all written by the same person, but he was not the Zodiac killer. And there's a very interesting commonality among them that they all use the infinitive phrase to die. Bates had to die sick of living, unwilling to die. Whereas the Zodiac Killer is not so much about using the word die, but all about kill. The Zodiac is just saying, kill this, kill that. I like killing people because it is so much fun. That's what the Zodiac wrote to begin the 408 cipher. So those things are in, in strong contradiction. But if you would like to hear more about the ideas of Zodiac researchers like Richard Grinnell and Soren Korsgaard, I invite you to go over to the Zodiac Killer channel and check out the Interview with the Experts series, if you haven't heard that yet, where um, you can hear just countless people sharing their ideas about the Zodiac case, and you can always like and subscribe to that channel as well. Now, to move on to the next segment here, I'm going to talk about a suspect whom I have never mentioned on the channel before because I only recently learned about him, and... I am a member of the Facebook group, the Zodiac Killer Library, which is a discussion group for the Zodiac Mystery. And somebody simply asked the question, why did the Zodiac Killer, the serial killer who operated in the 1960s, give himself the name Zodiac? And somebody, whom I'll simply call Melody, responded by saying, because he saw five whirlwinds touch down in a note field, making a stellar map office of a pentagram when he was a boy during World War II in Germany. One side of the stellar map is the suspect sign Gemini, and the other side is Hitler's sign. The suspect Henning Lagit made his own submission online regarding the whirlwinds. And I was like, what? I had absolutely no possible idea of what she was talking about. Some guy saw five whirlwinds touch down in a field of oats and uh, Heil Hitler. I was like, goodness gracious, what on earth does that mean? But once she actually clarified what she's trying to say is that 
She has a Zodiac Killer suspect named Henning Loggies, who was a witness to a particular meteorological event. And, I mean, some people become famous and then they go on to become Zodiac Killer suspects, and usually it's somebody who is already a known serial killer or suspected serial killer. For example, Robert Christian Hansen, the butcher baker from Alaska, gets also accused of being the Zodiac Killer. A more famous example would be Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, also accused of being the Zodiac Killer. Uh, the Black Dahlia, Avenger, and the Zodiac Killer get accused of being the same person, and um, everything under the sun and in the darkness, more or less. But um, Henning Loggies, as you heard, witnessed something that was very odd where five whirlwinds, which I guess would be small tornadoes, touched down in an oat field in Germany. And there is an, a small article that is written about him on EclipseChasers.com, which Melody did share in that group. And it says, Crop Circle Sky, diagram of five crop circles, arranging a geometrical grid consisting of circumscribing pentagrams produced by Jan Schwalchow and Wolfgang Schindler on the 12th of July, 1999. The drawing was made from the estimations in an eyewitness account by Henning Loggies, who claims to have seen these crop circles being formed by a symmetrical group of five simultaneous whirlwinds in a field of oats near Welsprung in Angeln, an area of Schleswig-Holstein in the north of Germany. The event happened on an otherwise windless and clear morning in the summer of 1946, when Henning Loggies was 11 years old. The stellar map, found in Roboro, Lexicon in Neunbunden, Hexter, and then it goes on talking about some of the places in Germany, but... Okay, so, these five whirlwinds touch down, and it forms a five-pointed shape, which you can then use to make a pentagram, draw a circle around it, and that becomes a pentacle. Thank you, Seth Rogen. And then it doesn't take too much imagination to see how, if you have the circle, you can draw one line going through it, and then one line going through it the other way, and you have the zodiac sign. But Melody's theory is that Henning Loggies moved from Germany after the war to Canada. He actually settled down in British Columbia, and then he went on to become a serial killer in Canada and then committed the zodiac murders in 1968 and 69. And even though I'm not giving out her last name, Melody says that she has a book in the works, and uh, she has been posting online since 2010, that was the earliest post I found from her, about her suspect, Henning Loggies. I wasn't able to find a photo of him, but you have been looking at the pentagram that has been created by these whirlwinds. The first point is, I wish that I could have seen that with my own eyes. Even if these things are just like small, non-threatening tornadoes that came down and formed crop circles, naturally, I mean, I say naturally, maybe it was the aliens, that would also be pretty cool. That would even be more valuable to witness. However, as far as being the Zodiac Killer, I wait to hear more about her findings. And I do notice one major discrepancy with what she posted in that rambling piece of text on Facebook. She said that he experienced the event with the, uh, the meteorological event with the whirlwinds in World War II. But the, this website here says that that was in 1946. So the war should have already been over, and you know you're you're always going to wonder about that if people are going to be completely consistent with their narratives. And furthermore, I didn't find anything about Henning Loggies being a suspect 
in any other crimes. I mean, I didn't look the most thoroughly because I'm waiting for Melody's book to come out, and I'm just curious more about this kind of Zodiac Killer German-Canadian connection. Because I was talking about Soren Korsgaard recently, um, recently, I mean like five minutes ago, and he's the author of America's Jack the Ripper, and Soren has said very publicly that his theory is that the Zodiac Killer was Canadian because of influences of British English. And um, other people have talked about this, Mike Rodelli, Mark Hewitt, about how there could be certain elements of British English influencing somebody's American English. And you would think that somebody coming from Germany is going to be more exposed to British English because they're in Europe. And then coming to Canada, which is also going to have a few a few British elements that Soren points out, but the, the elements of British English they're talking about are using the word shall more frequently, I shall versus I will, saying Happy Christmas instead of Merry Christmas, and even cultural references talking about Gilbert and Sullivan, and like which the Zodiac was obsessing over the Mikado, more or less. So there really is uh, some food for thought there. But um, as far as the whole British, Canadian, or American connection, if I had to bet my life on it now, I would, accept, I would expect that the Zodiac was American, and I'm not quite sure about um, all of these uh, theories trying to tie him to another country, but I'm going to approach the stuff with mostly an open mind. I do confess that I have looked at the Zodiac Killer German language connection before, because the Zodiac suspect, Earl Van Best, was rumored, reported, or said to have been fluent in English, German, and Japanese. He was more or less raised trilingual. He was taught German and Japanese by his father, and he bonded with his friend William Lomas because of their connection with the German language. And Earl Van Best was married three times. His third wife was Edith Coase, and she was from Austria. And one of these skeptical theories about Earl Van Best being the Zodiac Killer is... The final Zodiac crime was on October 11th of 1969, and the skeptics say that it's possible that he left the country, and he was actually in Austria at the time of the Stein murder, but um, the travel records only go back as far as the 1980s, like receipts from the airline companies, and they wouldn't have any records on that that they could provide, but they had some evidence and things that they were exploring about his story, but that's the subject of the book, The Most Dangerous Animal of All. I openly ask people not to read that book. I beg you, don't spend your money on it. If you can get it for free, sure. It's not so much don't read the book, it's don't pay your money for that book. I believe Gary Stewart, the author of that one, is an absolute fraud, and there's an excellent documentary that has been made about it on FX that is now available on Hulu. That's where I saw it anyway, and you can also hear an eight-part book discussion about Earl Van Best as the Zodiac Killer, responding to the most dangerous animal of all by Gary Stewart. And I kid thee not, I'm not just trying to puff the, them up, but everything you will want to know about that book is available in those episodes. And I've also done several standalone things about not only Gary Stewart and Earl Van Best, but I also have an episode on Michael Wachtel, who wrote the companion piece to the most dangerous animal of all. His book was called The End of the Zodiac Killer Mystery. And there's um, a lot of stuff available online for free. I repeat, Gary Stewart is most likely an absolute liar with his Earl Van Best theory. But that's just my take on the subject. And um, I was looking for clues in the German language, and I didn't find anything. 
Japanese, absolutely. There are all kinds of Japanese clues that could be found here and there, mostly tied to Mikado references, where there's some characters on the Exorcist letter, which was mailed in 1974, that resemble the Japanese language. My personal theory about that one is, I believe that that is purely just imitation Japanese. Someone is trying to kind of mimic the Japanese language, but not write actual Japanese characters, whether it's the kanji or the hiragana. They're just kind of doing a piss-poor attempt. I don't think there's any deeper meaning that has been contained in that message. But um, if anybody finds any German language clues at all in the Zodiac uh, killer letters or ciphers, you can send them my way. And I'll be curious once Melody's book comes out if she has uh, some more info to share about Henning Lagi's. Now, there, was, uh, there were several comments that came in from you guys over the course of the last week on the Zodiac Killer News Report, and I would like to go to some of them now. This one comes to us from Hot Rock Nation, who has a comment about the murder of Paul Stein, which took place on October 11th of 1969. Paul Stein was murdered to change the pattern, in my opinion. The papers were probably talking about how the women died and the men survived, and he was targeting couples, so he wanted to switch it up and give them something else to think about. You know, um, Hot Rock Nation, that is entirely possible, because the Zodiac has murdered David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, then the second crime was the murder of Darlene Farron, the third crime was the stabbing at Lake Berryessa, which saw the murder of Cecilia Shepard, but at Blue Rock Springs, when Darlene Farron was murdered, Mike Mageau survived the shooting at Lake Berryessa, Brian Hartnell survived the stabbing, so the Zodiac has successfully killed a male victim, David Faraday, a teenager who was 17 years old, but he could have done that very simply to prove that he can kill men, or he doesn't simply want to be viewed as a lady killer. He doesn't want to view that this is only about animosity toward women. He wants it to be about fueling his own ego or making himself look tough and badass, and also to confuse people, because everybody's thinking that the Zodiac Killer is going to go after couples or lovers' lanes or people sitting in parked cars in secluded areas. By murdering a taxi driver in Presidio Heights, he had an alternative way of sneaking around. Plus, this escalated the thrill kill, committing a crime in somewhat of a well-populated area, not just a car that's in the middle of nowhere where people are defenseless, all kinds of people saw the Zodiac Killer leaving Paul Stein's taxi cab. I mean, there are all sorts of witnesses, and that's why we have the composite sketch is of the Zodiac. Those come after the Stein shooting. So there could be several reasons why this person wanted uh, to do that, and um, I'll, I'll share some more of this on the Friday episode. But um, one person who might agree with you, Hot Rock Nation, about changing up the pattern is Michael Cole, who is the author of the Zodiac Revisited Trilogy, when he said that this is how the Zodiac was able to evade capture, this is why the Zodiac was never caught, he changed the way he committed crimes. And Michael Cole more or less believes that the Zodiac was someone who didn't operate super frequently, and maybe committing one murder here, and then once every two years he's committing a crime, but he changed the way in which he was committing the crimes, not to draw attention to himself, or not to leave a pattern that anybody could figure out. Michael Cole believes the first Zodiac crime occurred on the June 4th of 1963 with the Domingos Edwards murders, and then the Swindle murders happened in 64. Then the Zodiac changed his pattern in 1966 and murdered Sherry Joe Bates, 
committing the crimes in a different way so people couldn't put all the pieces together, so they wouldn't be able to connect the dots. And feel free to weigh in in the comment section down below. And Hot Rock Nation left a second comment here that says, I think Sherry Jo Bates and Cecilia Shepard were personal. They happen to know each other as well. Betty Lou and Darlene I'm 50-50 on. Could be. He, had, he knew them or had resentment toward girls in relationship that wasn't with him. In a relationship that wasn't with him. I think in some of the cases he followed them in their cars to the murder locations. You know, that's another interesting observation, but... Um, as far as Cecilia Shepard and Sherry Jo Bates go, this is perhaps in response to what I said last week on the news report that if a crime is committed by knife, a murder is committed by knife, does it not suggest an intimate connection with the victim, a personal connection? And this was just something that I heard in a movie when a fictional FBI profiler is like, when someone is stabbed to death, that usually means that the killer knew the victim. And there was only one female Zodiac victim that was murdered in 1969 that was stabbed to death, and her name was Cecilia Shepard. And uh, Brian Hartnell was also stabbed, and you have the killer wearing a hood. And it begs the question, why would the killer wear the hood at Lake Berryessa if he didn't want, um, if he didn't want to leave the victims alive and he wanted them to be murdered? And why does it have that particular symbol on it? One possible explanation is because he didn't want to be recognized in the daylight by someone who, whom he was targeting, whether it's Brian or Cecilia, they'd be like, oh, hey, you, no, no, hey, put it down, let's talk about this, and trying to manipulate him or take advantage of him. But that would have to suggest that they were, um, that they were the only real targets, and then everybody else is committed in a less uh, personal and less connected way. But... Our next comment comes to us from Aaron Aragon, who says, David Faraday probably drove off Lake Herman Road as an impromptu urge for a little chat of an unknown nature. The little strip of driveway is too exposed to the main road for private intimacy. Is it possible that the Zodiac drove the doomed couple to the side of the road? Faraday and Betty Lou had to see the driver drive up. No surprise. Why didn't F David Faraday peel out of there while he could as befuddling? Well, most people think that they were sitting in the car, David's in the driver's seat, and Betty Lou is in the passenger seat, and that the second vehicle would have approached, and they're just simply thinking, hey, what's going on? And they had no idea that somebody was going to pull a gun and murder them. The Lake Herman Road murders occurred on December 20th of 1968, and um, the motive for this really is rather blank, because... David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen both did not survive. They were unable to give any witness descriptions. And um, it really is a crime that is committed possibly just for opportunism, or as some of you guys were saying last week, that the locations were important, but the um, but the uh, victims were not pre-selected. So that could possibly tie into that and why it seems rather perplexing. NPC Porky has a comment about the murder of Ray Davis from 1962. Why do people still don't see the many obvious similarities and get on the little differences about the Ray Davis case? Practically, all Zodiac-confirmed attacks are different on their own. My position is the exact opposite of Michael Cole. Of, the, of all the unconfirmed victims, I believe that only Ray Davis is more probable than the Zod more, more probable a Zodiac victim.
while I don't believe that the Bates murder was the Zodiac or that the Sweetheart Slayer victims were the Zodiac. And um, the Sweetheart Slayer victims are uh, Robert Domingos and Linda Edwards, as well as Johnny Ray and Joyce Swindle. I hope I read that correctly because um, I don't want to misrepresent it. While I don't believe that Bates and the Sweetheart Slayer victims were not victims of the Zodiac, I think that um, maybe Porky is saying that those are likely Zodiac as well. But um, yes, uh, the Sweetheart Slayer victims, Domingos Edwards and Johnny Ray and Joyce Swindle. And I believe the Sweetheart Slayer was a name that was brought up from the very beginning. And I definitely think that uh, the sheriff named Webster down in Southern California in 1963 was involved with that. But I forget if he was the first one to use that term or not. Ah, well then, if you think that the murder of Ray Davis had to have been committed by the Zodiac Killer, how do you respond to uh, Dr. David Gold's wonderful challenges that, number one, the call in the Ray Davis case also came before the crime was committed. Somebody called and said, I'm going to pull something real nasty in Oceanside and you'll never figure it out. The Zodiac of 1968 and 69 did no such activities to the best of our knowledge. Also, the body of Ray Davis was dumped at a particular location. The Zodiac did not relocate the bodies of any of the confirmed victims in 1968 or 69. So there are some differences, but it is a pretty uh, good observation all the same. We have a comment that has come in here from Ray Grant, who is the author of Zodiac Killer Solved as well as Zodiac Killer Dreams, and he says something about using forensic genealogy to solve the Zodiac Killer mystery. Ray Grant writes, Here's another aspect of DNA that posters on Zodiac Killer message boards never think about, the brick wall of forensic genealogy. Let's assume that my dad, who was an accountant, had an affair with one of his secretaries at the company back in the early 1940s, and he accidentally impregnated her. Since she was married, she either didn't tell her husband or was unaware that the child was my father's. The kid grows up to be the Zodiac Killer. By the time law enforcement begins to use forensic genealogy to track down the killers in 2010, both the Zodiac's parents are dead. There's nothing to link them because the company either doesn't exist or purged its records during the computerization in the 1980s. So when law enforcement uses Zodiac DNA to create a family tree, it arrives at my nuclear family with five male siblings. They check the garbage of Jerry, Jim, Ray, John, and Joe, and they discover that the DNA belongs to a half-sibling of mine, and that I am a half-sibling of the Zodiac Killer. But my own parents were only married once, so there's no branch that leads to the Zodiac's identity. And that's just one example. There were also adoptions, gaps in the official records, which would stop a trace in its tracks. Genetic genealogy isn't foolproof. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much uh, to Ray Grant for that comment. And that is just another problem, though, that people would experience investigating the Zodiac Killer mystery. But um, Ray Grant, I think, was the either the first person to discover this, or definitely the first person that I learned about this from, that the Zodiac has a connection to the number pi, 3.14, and the numbers um, continue to go on. And it relates to the alphanumeric value of pi, because that question that I was talking about where Melody responded to with her theory on Hennig Lagis was, why did the Zodiac Killer use that name? Well, with pi, 
the, the third letter of the alphabet is what? C, right? What's the first letter? A. The fourth letter, D. 314. 3.14. And then I is the ninth letter. O is the fifteenth letter. And then Z, of course, is 26. So you have the letters of the word zodiac relate their alphanumeric value to the number pi, or the uh, first several digits of it anyway. There's a zodiac suspect out there named Richard Gajkowski, though, that had a birthday on March 14th, 3.14. And we can just put that up with some of the other coincidences surrounding the uh, suspicions involving Richard Gajkowski in the zodiac case. I mean, there's a solution to the Z13 cipher, which connects uh, him to all of this. There are also uh, the corridor at Lake Berryessa, where the Zodiac wrote out the dates of activity. And the, on the day Lake, the, the Lake Berryessa stabbing occurred, you can add up the numbers and you'll get 33, Gajkowski's age at the time. There are all types of coincidences that point toward Gajk as the Zodiac, but then there's another mountain of evidence that is going against him being the Zodiac killer. And Ray uh, Grant just pointed out that even if they obtain the Zodiac's DNA, they might not even be able to do some type of forensic genealogy, and I'm really not certain. And um, Ray Grant was also talking about the likelihood of obtaining DNA from the outside of a Zodiac envelope that was not saliva DNA, and how it uh, could be very unlikely, because it's exposed to all sorts of possibilities for contamination during the mailing process. But I thank um, everyone for their comments here. And at this time, I would like to give a shout-out to Bruce, who uses the YouTube name BH for sending me some things here that are actually more or less collectible matchbooks that have the name Zodiac on them. And if you look here, though, you'll see that not only do they use the name Zodiac in the names of these businesses, but they also have more or less Zodiac signs. Some of them even have complete astrological designs. I found that the one that seems to have the strongest possibility of some type of Zodiac connection would be the one that says the uh, Marcus Daily Restaurant and talks about the Zodiac Room, because even if you get online and you look up this particular restaurant and the collectible matchbook, it says that it's a 1940s-style design. So could that have been an influence on the reason why the name Zodiac was chosen? The one that contains the complete astrological signs, and perhaps the most um, intricate of these designs, is called uh, simply The Zodiac, but it was located in St. Louis, Missouri. I went through some of these earlier. I think the, um, as I said, the Zodiac Room may have the strongest possibility of some relation, but I think that these are very, very significant on just how prevalent and frequently used the term Zodiac is. It's going to be found on watches, the Ford Zodiac is going to be found on business names, not to mention the circle with the cross going through it, because even as we see on the one that says the Zodiac Cocktail Bar, there is a circle with a cross going through it, but it's also turned the zodiac sign into a compass saying north, south, east, or west, you will find our spot the best. So that is not simply just a circle with some lines in it, it is also a compass. And I really think that this goes to show you that this isn't the most outrageous and intricately thought out plot in the world for somebody to give themselves the name Zodiac. It could have come from the Zodiac watches, or it could have come from any type of place that somebody was walking by. Maybe they lived across the street from one of these Zodiac bars and clubs when they were growing up. 
I mean, anything is possible in an unsolved case. So I'm definitely going to pay attention to some things like that, because you'd really have to expect that somebody didn't just make this up out of nowhere, not to mention the film Charlie Chan at Treasure Island, which talks about the villain named Zodiac or Dr. Zodiac, whatever it was. But one of my own original theories is that the Zodiac first chose the letter Z in in 1966 or later. As I said, I don't believe the Zodiac Killer murdered Sherry Jo Bates. I don't believe the Zodiac wrote any of those pieces of writing. But I think that the Zodiac Killer was very familiar with the Riverside murder of Sherry Jo Bates. And the letters that are mailed say Bates had to die. There will be more, signed with a Z, or what looks like to be a Z with the um, kind of squiggly little Q-top. So there's also a, an article and a story that was published in Detective Story magazine back in 1921 that featured a character named Z that says this is Z speaking. So I think the letter Z was chosen first, and sometime after 1966, the person who wrote the Zodiac letters was just looking for a suitable word or something connected in his brain one day, Z plus Zodiac, and that's how the Zodiac Killer was created, that all of those elements in the past, kind of like a snowball effect, creating some type of serial killer named Z, but then, oh, the term Zodiac also sounded just a little bit badass. That was my absolute gut instinct when I was a kid. I thought that the person who chose the name Zodiac just did it because it sounded tough or it sounded somewhat mysterious. It sounds strong in some ways. The thing I used to say on the channel is, what's the guy going to call himself? The Astrologer? This is the Astrologer speaking. I'm responsible for the two deaths at Lake Herman Road. That definitely doesn't sound very tough or badass or strong. So I think that that is perhaps one of the... um more likely possibilities out there. But in terms of the channel, as I said, this Friday I will be doing a Zodiac episode based on the book The Hunt for Zodiac by Mike Rodelli, and I would just like to look at a few comments that you guys gave about the murder of Teresa Holbach and the stories that have been shared on Making a Murderer, the Netflix series. And Teresa Holbach was murdered in 2005, and we have a comment that is from Tom Jim that says, I've watched and read info, both for and against Stephen Avery being responsible for the murder of Teresa Holbach, and not that my opinion matters, but I think Stephen Avery at least had something to do with Teresa's murder and disposal of her body. But I also believe there was police misconduct, which is worse because since if a true killer should be freed because of planted evidence by the police and not affording him a fair trial, they screwed up the case no matter what, no matter how you look at it. Thanks for covering Teresa Hallback's death. It's sad how sometimes the true crime victims get forgotten or treated like evidence and the suspects become folk heroes. Keep up the good work. Hey, Tom, Jim, thank you so much. Yes, because on the Netflix series Making a Murderer, they mostly are leaning toward the fact that this guy named Stephen Avery was wrongfully convicted for a crime in 2003. He was then let out of prison because DNA exonerated him. And the theory of the police and law enforcement is two years later in 2005, he committed the murder of Teresa Holbach, who was a photographer, and that he was guilty of that crime. So then he was sent back to prison. Even the whole question is, did he actually do it? 
And um, it could be that he was absolutely framed by the authorities, and it could also be that um, he did not. But they, like, I mean, I think what Tom Jim is arguing here is that no matter what, the they botched the case. Something seems mis, uh, mishandled. And if any type of evidence is mishandled, or if any type of evidence is planted, then someone should be exonerated because, as Tom said, you have the right to a fair trial. And if someone is tampering with the evidence, then you don't have a right to a fair trial. Someone who thinks that Stephen Avery is guilty of the murder of Teresa Hallback is 1212 Matt, who says he tortured animals for sheer pleasure. That speaks volumes of Stephen Avery's guilt or innocence. Okay, 1212 Matt. I know where you're coming from about how someone who tortured animals is more likely to commit violent actions in their adulthood, but that speaks volumes about his guilt or innocence. No, it doesn't. Um, just because somebody has done something in the past, it doesn't mean they did something in 2005. Um, it doesn't mean that he committed that exact crime. Oh, I completely follow what you're saying, that that suggests that he would have had homicidal tendencies. However, that doesn't mean at all that he committed the murder of Teresa Hallback. Like, let's say, for example, we have somebody who was guilty of one particular crime, it doesn't mean that he was also the Zodiac Killer. Sorry to tell half of the human race, but that's, that's just simply not the case. I don't know, maybe some guy saw five tornadoes in Germany in 1946. Hmm, something suspicious about that guy. There wasn't a single breeze going on that night. How on earth did this happen? Maybe he's the Zodiac Killer. I don't know, but um, I definitely, definitely cannot wait to find out all the details of that story. And the final comment that came in on the most recent episode, The Murder of Teresa Hallback, was from Akhtar Ali, who says, His, He is innocent. It is all a setup. Well, that's what the uh, show is more or less arguing, and um, there's some books out there, such as Wrecking Crew by John Farrakh, as well as Illusion of Justice by Jerry Buting, which talk about all the ways in which blood could have been planted, and um, evidence from Teresa Hallback could have been placed into Stephen Avery's home, most notably her car key. And, I mean, it looks pretty damning. It's like you didn't know anything about Stephen Avery. Teresa Holbeck is murdered. Her bone remains are found burned on his property. Her car is found on his property. The key to her car is found in his bedroom. And there is his blood in her car. So he's either the best liar in the world and the most dangerous person who has ever walked in the state of Wisconsin, or this was all planted by people trying to frame him and make him look guilty. And there could be motives for this that could be pressuring people into admitting to things that didn't actually happen. It really is quite shocking. But as for now, I would like to um, turn it over to you guys, and I just wanted to share some of these very insightful comments about uh, making a murderer and the story of Stephen Avery and the murder of Teresa Hallback. And you can always feel free to visit some of the playlists here on this channel, such as the Zodiac Killer News Report playlist, the Making a Murderer playlist, and there are now more than 1,000 episodes of Black Box Online Radio, so I invite you to check out all the things about the true crime cases, as well as any subject under the sun or in the darkness here. And that'll be all for me now. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box, as well as blackboxned88 on Instagram. And I will see you over there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.